0: Leviticus chapter 5, Leviticus chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 14, and we're going to read down through verse 7 of chapter 6, Leviticus 5, 14, through chapter 6, verse 7, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6 are actually in chapter 5 in the Hebrew Bible, so uh, when they divided up chapters and verses, the Hebrew Bible kept those together, and uh, they go together. So it's one of those unfortunate places where the division takes place, and there's not really a division of topic. Leviticus 5, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord. A ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation in silver by shekels in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing, and shall add to it a fifth part of it, and give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done... Though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it will be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, Then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he'll be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the great sufficiency of Christ's work and that It breaks bondage that we are unable to break. It pays debts we're unable to pay. It cleanses stains that we're unable to cleanse. It appeases the wrath of God that we're unable to appease. And Father, we thank you that you have provided such a sacrifice in Christ Jesus to bring us to yourself. And God, we're grateful that you have turned our hearts to to love you. And to seek you. Oh God we pray that you would give us hearts that are open to you this evening. As we consider again one of these Old Testament sacrifices. And the the type that it provides of which Christ is the antitype. God help us to see him more clearly because we see these things. And to love him more. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Well, last time we were in Leviticus, we looked at the sin offering, and if you remember, there were different classes of people, and by that I mean there was a a specific sin offering for the priest or for the entire congregation, for a civic leader, for an individual, and then within the individuals, uh, depending upon your means, there were different offerings that were available. You brought all that you could, but if you couldn't bring the the highest-priced offering, you brought the one that you could, all the way down to being able to glean in someone else's field and gather together grain to take as an offering to the Lord for a sin offering. So God, really gracious in his provision for that offering. Tonight we look at the guilt offering, and there is some overlap between these offerings, so much so that some people, there's some confusion sometimes between Where does uh, the Bible actually start talking about the guilt offering versus the sin offering? Some people think that you would back all the way up to chapter 5 and verse 1. I do think that we would pick up where we are tonight in verse 14. But um, the way that the priest handled both offerings was was the same. So in chapter 7, chapter 7 tells of how the priests are to handle the different offerings. And in verse 7 of chapter 7, It says, the guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And he's describing how the the priest handles it. Well, you handle the the guilt offering just like you handle the sin offering. So um, a lot of overlap. And yet some major distinctions also. Again, I mentioned that within the different groups of people that uh, the Bible describes for the sin offering, there were different sacrifices uh, that were to be offered. So a priest who sinned because of the um, the nature of his ministry public and being able to lead other people into sin by his sin, there was a greater sacrifice or offering required at his hand than there was for anyone else. He had to bring a bull. And the blood was not only sprinkled on the altar in the outer court, but it was taken inside of the holy place and sprinkled on the altar of incense, the Israelite, who wasn't a priest, if they sinned, the blood wasn't taken into the sanctuary. And they didn't have to bring a bull. They could bring a female goat or sheep or pigeons or doves or, as I mentioned, grain. So there were a number of different offerings available depending on their circumstances. But with the guilt offering, there's only one offering that's acceptable, and it is a ram. There's not all these different offerings depending on your circumstances. You bring your ram or you don't bring anything. This ram, like any animal that was to be brought, was to be without defect. You were not supposed to bring the the animal that's dying anyway. The one that's limping. The one that's blind in one eye, you know, or or can't produce anymore. You don't bring that animal. You bring the best. You bring one without defect. But in chapter 5, the Bible adds Another kind of level, if you will, of of uh, making sure that that animal was worth what God requ- it, it meant the requirements of God. So for instance, in verse fifteen of chapter five, um, you're told to bring this animal a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation in silver by shekels in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. Now, I'll tell you, there's some disagreement about this. There are some people who think that what you would do is bring an animal and the priest would give a value to it and you could pay that value in money and that that would satisfy this. Or you could pay a certain amount of money and the priest would go and buy the required animal and offer the sacrifice. I don't believe that that's what he's talking about, but rather I think that the animal that you brought had to be worth a certain amount of money. It had to reach a certain value. And the Bible, it doesn't give us a dollar amount, but it says that it's to be valued according to the shekel of the sanctuary. There were a number of different systems of, of money during that time. Uh, it's kind of a, a, um, a thing said that uh, you know, the, the merchant, when he's selling, has one set of weights, and when he's buying, has a different set of weights. Um, and that, of course, was wicked. But there were different ways to weigh out money. But the the temple or the tabernacle had its own weight system. And it set its value according to that. And so there was no arbitrariness according to what your weights might be. Or your weights might be something different. Well, the sanctuary had its own. And so according to the weight of the shekel in the sanctuary. That kind of weight system. That kind of monetary system. The priest assigned a value. And you had to bring an animal that was... Consistent with what God was requiring. Because as you came bringing this animal. This animal represented something new. It represents restitution. There's a compensation being made for the wrong that you've done. Your sin is like a debt against God. You have taken from God what was rightfully His. And He demands payment. And He has provided this animal sacrifice to as a picture of what Christ would do. But He has provided it in these Old Testament times to meet that debt. And so there, those are some major distinctions. Only a ram. It's a ram of assigned value. It is brought to make restitution or a compensation for the wrong done. As the Bible lays this out and describes how this is to work... There are three areas of sin that it mentions. The first is in verses 15 and 16. And it describes the sin in a number of ways, and one of the things that it says about the sin in these verses is that it is a breach of faith or the, the New American Standard actually calls it unfaithfulness. I think the ESV translates it breach of faith and it's a it's a good way of looking at it or thinking about it. It's a breach of faith, an unfaithful act that has occurred. This is a sin that involves violating one's obligations that exist as a result of being a people who live in a covenant relationship with God. So because you're in this relationship, there are certain obligations that you're required, and you didn't meet that obligation. You have broken faith with God. Another place that this, this word is used, this idea is used, is in 2 Chronicles 36, 14. And there it speaks of a marriage relationship. And the idea there of a breaking faith within the bounds of that relationship is of marital unfaithfulness, adultery. And so it's that kind of idea. You've broken faith with God. This breaking of faith, this breach of faith that the Bible describes here is said to be against the Lord's holy things in verse 15. That was a term that was primarily used for the sacrifice, but in a a more general way of all the property of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle itself, the articles of furniture within the tabernacle and within the courtyard of the tabernacle. So the altar, the the laver, the, the lampstand, all of those different pieces of furniture, the sacrifices themselves, including the portions that were given to the priest as part of his income, whether it be the skin or portions of meat that he could eat or his family could eat. Or with some sacrifices, you remember, there were portions that you would eat. and a peace offering, there's a, a feast that's thrown and, and you and you others would come and, and eat that animal and you had a certain amount of time in which you could do that. And so, to sin against the Lord's holy things is in some way to have a breach of faith regarding those things. Now, The Bible's not speaking specifically of this in this instance, but here's kind of an example. Uh, You remember in the book of Joshua, when they go to fight the battle of Ai, they're defeated because there's sin in the camp. Achan, when they fought the battle of Jericho, took some of the things that were dedicated to God. God said, everything in Jericho is mine. You don't take anything. It's mine. And Achan does take some things. He sees gold and stuff, and he takes it, and he buries it under his tent. And God has said, that's mine. You've broken faith with me because you took what I claimed for myself. And so all these things around the temple, the, the sacrifices, they are, in one sense, everything's God's, right? But these have been peculiarly set aside for the purposes of God. And then to take that was seen to be as a breach of faith. Now, One other thing about this sin that we see in verses 15 and 16, not only a breach of faith against the Lord's holy things, but it is described as something that's unintentional. This isn't a deliberate act, but verse 15 says, if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things. So this is a a mistake made. It's still guilt, but it is a mistake made. So what would that look like? What could that possibly look like? Well, let me give you uh, kind of an example, maybe. In Leviticus chapter 22, Leviticus 22, beginning in verse 10, these are various rules for the priest. And what he, in this section, in verse 10 and following, what he could eat, what he couldn't eat, what people around him could eat or not eat. So in verse 10, no layman, however, is to eat the holy gift. And this is the the food that's being taken from a portion of an offering, a sacrifice that's given as a portion to the priest. A layman is not to eat that. A sojourner with the priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift. So if if you've hired someone to come work on your house for the day, he can't eat that portion that the priest could eat. But, verse 11, if a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it, and those who are born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the offering of the gifts. But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. So you see, there's... You know, this group can eat, this one can't. In this condition, you can't eat. In this condition, you can't. And there's more, but there's there's all these various rules. And you can imagine maybe, you know, you have a daughter who marries a layman. They have kids and grandkids come with mom and dad to the house and you pick up the wrong thing and eat it. Well, it was unintentional. Maybe you didn't realize that was part of the holy things that you weren't supposed to eat. I thought it was, I thought it was the, you know, the food over here on the general side and I picked up the wrong thing. It was unintentional, but I did it, and I'm guilty. So that's one way that there could have been a breach against the Lord's holy things. When that happened, a guilt offering was to be offered. Restitution was to be made. A ram was to be brought and sacrificed. There's a second um, sin described or category of sin In verses 17 through 19, verse 17 says, Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your evaluation, for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, And it will be forgiven him. Now in verses 15 and 16. There's an unintentional sin. In these verses. There's something a little bit different happening. It speaks of the commandments of God. And and here's a person who sins unaware. But I believe as I understand. The idea is not that he's unaware of the commandment. As much as he is unaware that he sinned. The idea here seems to be. That. Here's a person who believes he's sinned, there's there seems to be a rift between this person and God, but the person can't put his finger on what that is. I I believe I'm guilty before the Lord. There's something there. There's there's something between us and I want to make it right, but I don't know how to name it. I don't know how to confess a specific sin because Again, in verse 18, he did not know it. He's unaware of what that particular thing is. So what do you do when you feel like I probably have done something? The Lord's displeased. But I don't know what that thing is and I don't know what to do with this. Well, God has provided a sacrifice, a guilt offering. And you might notice that in verses 15 and 16 with this unintentional sin where you know what it is, restitution is made... You bring this animal plus 20%. But with this this particular instance in verses 17 and following, you're not sure what it is. You bring the sacrifice. It doesn't ask for another 20%. You bring the sacrifice. And God forgives, even though you can't identify specifically what it is. This person is concerned, genuinely concerned that they've broken the law. Concerned that there might be a rift between him and God. Have you ever been there? God, I, I don't know specifically what it is, but I just I feel like there's something between you and me. I don't want it to be there. And if I knew what it was, I'd confess it. But I don't know. Job chapter 1 and verse 5 says that Job would offer burnt offerings. I know it's talking about burnt offerings instead of guilt offerings, but the idea is still there. He would offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, his kids. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. He doesn't know that they've done anything. But maybe they have. And so, God in kindness provides a way to make amends. Verse 18 says a ram is to be brought. Again, there's not a a, a list of animals that you can choose from depending on your means. But if you're in this situation, you bring a ram. And as you do, atonement is made. And there's the promise at the end of verse 18... As there was at the end of verse 16. It will be forgiven him. And that forgiveness was necessary. Because verse 19 says. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Philip Everson. A commentator said. Anxious people. With tender consciences. Were thus able to find peace. Through the trespass offering. Or the, the guilt offering. Um, God provided a way to meet their tender conscience. There's one other situation described, and there's actually three scenarios within this situation in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Here is a description of a vertical offense that comes by way of horizontal offense. And I'll try to explain. He gives, again, three scenarios. three possi- there, I'm sure there could be other possibilities, but here's three examples that he gives us. The first is that of a security deposit or a pledge being given, and after you've received it, you conveniently forget that you got it. Verse two says when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him. I don't remember that. You know, do you have a receipt? Exodus chapter 22, verse 7 through verse 13. Exodus 22, verse 7 says If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, He shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep... Or any animal to keep from him and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking. An oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property. And its owner shall accept it, that is his word, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution For what has been torn to pieces. So maybe you you receive a security deposit and you say it was stolen. I'd gladly, you know, I I don't have it anymore. Well, then you have to go and stand before the judge and swear, "I, I don't have it. And if you do, then you pay it back twice. Another, um, one mentioned here in verse two is that of theft or extortion. So you just you steal what belongs to someone else, or to extort is to, to get it by force or intimidation, right? And you take what isn't yours, and um, maybe you're in a position of power. Or you know the idea here seems to be more of oppression than than just uh, deceitfulness. You you take what was not yours, and this becomes a problem. That the prophets often speak about. A third. That we see in chapter 6 and verse 3. Is that of of found property. So verse 3 says. If you have found what was lost. And lied about it and sworn falsely. So that he sins in regard to any one. Of the things a man may do. So you find something. And then when the owner shows up to to claim it. You say I don't know what you're talking about what's what's that um, exodus twenty three and verse four says if you meet your enemy's ox not just your friend your enemy if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away you shall surely return it to him and then in deuteronomy chapter twenty two Beginning in verse 1, Deuteronomy 22, verse 1, You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countryman. If your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it. Then you shall restore it to him. So you bring it home, but you bring it home for safekeeping. Thus you shall do with his donkey and you shall do the same with his garment. And you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countryman which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox falling down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. So here's a description of, in in the first part of these verses, you know, there's this lost animal or lost garment. You find it. If you know who it is, you give it back. If you don't, you keep it safely until they come and ask for it, and then you give it back. But you can imagine how, you know, if you've kept it safe, maybe some time goes by, and you just start to think of it as yours. And maybe it's better than what you've got. And he comes around looking, and you conveniently forget it's his. You know, I, I hadn't seen it. This has so many little applications that you can make, Um, and the overall idea really is—you know—is really is doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you, isn't it? If I lost my insert, you know, item, and you found it, I'd like you to give it back to me, and I'm supposed to assume that you would like the same thing—that you would want it back. Have you ever been tempted? At the checkout line, when you've given too much, you know, they haven't given you enough change back to to point out, you know, it's supposed to be this. But then maybe they they give you too much change back, and you think, whoo, my gain, you know, that common core math coming through. And, And so it goes to your pocket, and, you know, they should hire better cashiers, right? They should be more careful. Maybe you should be more careful. I get into conversations with my kids, all these hypotheticals, but uh, they do make you think like if you found a thousand dollars in Walmart parking lot, what do you do with it? Well you know you go into Walmart and you try to figure out whose is this? It's a thousand dollars. But what if it's a dollar? I mean at what point is it not worth you know in your own mind trying to figure out whose is this? But at what point is it really yours? You know, I don't have a definite answer for that. But um, it's a question worth pondering. In each of these scenarios described in Leviticus 6, This neighbor has been defrauded. It's not just that that you found something and forgot about it. You defrauded your neighbor. You took what wasn't yours. You claimed it as your own. And in many of these instances where you're kind of called to account, hey, the, the thing I gave you that you can't find, well, now we stand before a judge And you're swearing by God's name. You don't have it. And there's a complication here because not only have you defrauded your neighbor, you just broke the third commandment and took the Lord's name in vain. It's a terrible situation. It's a terrible compounded guilt. What must you do? Well, the Bible describes here that you make restitution to the person that you've defrauded. So if you took an animal and it was worth this much, if you don't have the animal still, you you pay them the value of the animal plus 20% for the loss that they've incurred. And then you go to the tabernacle with a ram and you offer a sacrifice to God. Because not only have you defrauded your neighbor, but by defrauding your neighbor, you defrauded God. There are a few new things here that we don't see in what's described in chapter 5. Uh, one thing that's definitely different in verse 15 of chapter 5, we saw that the sin that's described is described as one that's unintentional. If you've broken faith with God, this unfaithful act... Against the holy things of God. It's unintentional. In verse 17, here's this thing that you're unaware of. And later it's described as something you didn't know. You're ignorant. There's something, but you're not sure what. But you get to chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. And I don't see how you can possibly say this is unintentional or ignorance. Someone entrusted you with something And you said it's lost, but really you just decided to keep it. Or this animal wandered onto your property and you decided it's better than the one I got. It's mine. I I don't know what you're talking about. Or you took it by force or intimidation. How can you say, I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) That How's a slip? How can you say, "I, I wasn't even aware that I did it. So these are kind of the three... Situations that are described in chapters 5 through 6. Now, let's look at this a bit more. These verses, I believe, teach us that any sin really against our neighbor is a sin against God. We see this particularly in chapter 6. Notice verse 2 again. When a person sins and acts unfaithfully, against whom? Against your neighbor? Against the guy down the road? No, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion. When you deceived your companion, you acted unfaithfully against God. Now, we really know this, at least academically, we know this, but it's convenient sometimes to kind of forget it when push comes to shove and, you know, it's time to to live upon it. And because the sin against neighbor is also sin against God, there was restitution not only to the neighbor, but there was offering made to God. You make it right with the neighbor, you make it right with God. This reality that uh, these two things are, are linked, I believe is something that we see in the great commandment the great commandment, you know, love the Lord your God. And the second, like it, love your neighbor. And to really love God like you should, you have to love your neighbor. And if you're not loving your neighbor, then how can you really love God like you should? And then by defrauding your neighbor, well, you're not loving God. You, you've just sinned against the Lord. It's this reality that these two ideas are linked together that explains a statement like David makes in Psalm 51 when he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Have you never been tempted to think, "Whoa, wait a minute, David, what about Bathsheba? What about your wife? What about your wife? What about the other people that died and were affected by all this? What, what about them? And it's true, he did sin against them, but because his sin against them was sin against God, there was nothing wrong with this statement. His statement was true. Ultimately, what I did, God, was, I sinned against you by defrauding them. And so do you and I. Our sin against others is a sin against God. It's not just that I have offended you or, or that I have uh, uh, done you wrong. But by doing you wrong, I have offended God. In Matthew chapter 5. Verse 23. Jesus says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar. And there remember that your brother has something against you. What do you do? Leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. God doesn't say, get it right with me first and then go get it right with your neighbor. He says, get it right with your neighbor first and then come and get it right with me. Before you bring your offering to me, go and be reconciled. It's kind of shocking that the order is that. But what's the evidence that you really are seeking to be reconciled with God? You went and got reconciled with your brother. The other side of that, though, is this. Every offense, not talking about legitimate offenses, you know, not just, not, not just that you wear your feelings on your sleeve and are offended super easily. I don't mean that, but a legitimate offense. Every legitimate offense that needs to be made right with someone else then also needs to be taken to God. You need to ask him to forgive you. Because if you've offended that person, you've wronged them and you need to make it right. Well, you've also offended God. You've sinned against the Lord. And so you should go to Him and ask His forgiveness. So one thing that we see here is that sin against your neighbor is sin against God. A second thing, though, is this. We've talked about sin in the past weeks in terms of transgression of the law. So sin is a a transgression of the law. The line, God says the line is here and we go across the line. We wander across it or, or we charge across it however we get there. We go across it and by doing that we become guilty and we incur the wrath of God and because God's wrath abides upon us we need propitiation. His wrath needs to be appeased because we cannot appease it. And then with the sin offering, we saw that sin is a corruption or a pollution by which we are defiled. We've been made unclean and we're unable to remove the stain. But Christ Jesus removes the stain. He washes us white as snow. But here, sin isn't described in terms of transgression or corruption, but in terms of fraud by which you rob God of that which is rightfully his and incur a debt that you cannot pay. Many of us have heard Mr. Roberts describe sin as the thief of God's glory. Well, this is it. You've robbed him of what's rightfully his. You've incurred a debt. It is that. You you took what was his. Sin incurs a debt. We, We hear it. In the model prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6 and says, forgive us our what? Our debts. As we forgive those, as we forgive our debtors, forgive our debts. In Matthew 18, he describes something of this debt by comparison But I do think it's instructive. Matthew 18, verse 21. This is where Peter comes and magnanimously asks if he should forgive his brother seven times. And Jesus explains, "No, much, much more than that. And then he gives him this illustration. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Verse 24. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, Jesus is is pointing out, you've been forgiven so much, how can you not forgive anyone? But you have been forgiven so much. And in the illustration that he gives, here's, here's someone who with time has the ability to repay compared to someone who owes this master something he could not repay in many lifetimes. There's no possibility of repaying it. And that's us. There's no possibility of repaying the debt that we owe. It's massive. You know, it's... We think of the the national debt as being a you know a number that's hard to calculate well it's nothing in comparison to the debt that we owe God we can't compute it we can't comprehend it Now if sin is is taking from God that which is rightfully is What does that look like? We don't live in the Old Testament. There's not, you know, it's not like we're going uh, and taking portions of the offering that we shouldn't have taken like Eli's sons were. So what would that look like today? Maybe another way to ask the question or to consider it is this. What do you owe him? What's rightfully his. That you shouldn't touch. Certainly his worship. You owe him worship. And to worship him the way that he describes. He wants to be worshiped. And to not give him the worship that he desires. That he commands. That he deserves is that not touching the holy things of God and taking from God something that's rightfully His? The glory that's due His name. What glory is due His name? Well, all glory is due His name. And to fail Him to give the glory that's due His name is, is terrible. What do you owe Him? I mean, really, we have to say everything. What don't I owe him? What don't you owe him? Anything he puts his hand on and says, mine, how can I say no? And yet the awful reality is that if I gave him everything that he required as he asked for it, I still can't pay back the debt. And that leads me to the third thing, and that is this. Sin is a debt, and everything about what is required to pay the debt, described in Leviticus and described throughout the rest of the Bible, makes the very pointed point that it's costly, infinitely costly. Vertically, there was a cost. If you defrauded your neighbor in some way, you were to make restitution. Pardon me, that was horizontally. You were to make restitution. You're to give them an extra 20% because of the loss that they've incurred. You are then to take a ram to be offered. and That's not an insignificant cost. And then it has to be an appropriate ram. One that the priest will accept because it's, it's valued appropriately. And vertically, if you've sinned against God and His holy things, again, you bring a ram. And according to that valuation... Another 20% offering to the Lord. It was a costly sacrifice. Restitution had to be made because you have taken from God what's His. Or from your neighbor. But by taking from your neighbor, you've taken from God. So you have to make compensation back to the Lord or to your neighbor. Really, the debt, even within the picture of the sacrifice that's described here, is one that's so great, it can only be answered here by substitution. Why do you bring a ram to the priest at the altar? Because to meet the requirement to make restitution, what really has to happen is a death. And the death that needs to happen is yours. Mine. But God provides a substitute. He provides an animal in the Old Testament that's just a type of what must come, but He does provide that as a substitute. And the death of that animal pictures the reality that you should have died and I should have died because of the debt that I've incurred against God. It is that great. And so the sacrifice is made, this substitution, and it provides atonement, a covering, resulting in each of these instances with forgiveness. But ultimately, the Israelites' hope was not in the animal sacrifices. His hope was in the same place as ours must be. I think you hear it a bit in David's words in Psalm 51 according to the multitude of your tender mercies blot out my transgression not according to the valuation of this animal but according to the multitude of your tender mercies or in Psalm 103 if you lord should mark iniquity o lord who could stand But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. For with the Lord, there is forgiveness and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God himself provided a trespass offering and he provides it in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 describes this. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. A guilt offering, paying back the debt. Making restitution for the debt that we've incurred that we cannot pay. Christ has not only appeased the wrath of God and removed the stain of our defilement, but He Himself has paid the debt. And the Father is pleased with this. He sees it. He's satisfied. The book of Colossians describes this also in these terms. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. For when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way Having nailed it to the cross here 's a debt, a certificate of debt, and he 's taken it away he 's nailed it to the cross the The debt has been met it 's been removed, the curse is removed, and you and I are now free to come to God. Jesus is the sacrifice. That God himself has provided. He is the one who atones as our substitute. He's the one who has propitiated the wrath of God. He's the one who, as I said, has cleansed our defilement. So that David can say, wash me. And I shall be whiter than snow. And he pays our debt making full restitution to God. His blood is of sufficient worth. We couldn't pay the debt. The animals couldn't pay the debt. But Christ could. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19 saying to believers knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ so Valuable is His blood. That it is infinitely sufficient. First John 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Our unintentional sins. Honest mistakes. The deliberate sins. I see my neighbor's property and I want it. Even the ignorant ones. God, there's something. I'm not even sure what it is. And John writes in chapter 2 and verse 1. If anyone sins. We have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. And his blood is the propitiation for our sins. He will forgive. And at great cost. There is no such thing as cheap grace. There is no such thing as cheap forgiveness. God readily forgives you. God faithfully forgives you when you come to Him. But don't think it's cheap. Don't think it's easy. Don't think that it's at no cost. It's at a great cost. His blood redeems us. And His blood then calls us to live holy lives. I mentioned 1 Peter 1 a moment ago where we're told that we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. In the previous verse, verse 17, he says, so conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing with what kind of blood you've been redeemed. Well, these offerings point us To Christ. They are types of which he is the antitype. The burnt offering. The grain offering. The peace offering. The sin offering. The trespass offering. We see different aspects of his sacrifice. His one sacrifice. In the work of Christ. We see different aspects of his work. In each of those separate sacrifices. And together they paint a rich picture of the father's provision through Christ. Christ. To bring us to himself. Let me wrap up with one other thing. We're on this side of the cross. And we look back to what Christ has done. Gratefully. We shouldn't forget that as the Old Testament worshiper was instructed to make amends. Not only toward God, but toward others. Christ has paid the debt toward the Father. But we are instructed to go to those we've offended as best we can and make it right. We must not lose sight of the need to make amends when we have defrauded someone, when we have wronged someone. This isn't always easy. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes people will not allow you to make amends. Uh, there are people who, you know, they're offended and they're going to be offended no matter what you do. But to the degree that you can, you leave your offering and you go make it right and you come back and make your offering. These uh, various sacrifices were all mercies of God. They were all pointing toward the great mercy, the great picture of love that he gives us when Christ comes while we are yet sinners and dies for us.